It's the late 300s, and there appears to be a crack in the great Roman civilization. Many Germanic peoples are invading the empire, and in 476, the last Roman empire is removed from power, ending one of the greatest civilizations of all time. These factors led to a period of time referred to as the Middle or Dark Ages, a time between ancient and modern times, a time when many communities became self-sufficient, leading to the feudal system where powerful lords divided their lands among lesser lords or vassals. And in exchange for this land, the vassal pledged service and loyalty to the Lord. Our medieval storytellers will share their Middle Ages knowledge through historical fiction narratives. These stories are based on individual and whole class research and their exploration of the Middle Ages in Europe. For FCI, I'm Carl Kinnear, and this is Medieval Storytellers. You will hear interesting stories about the lives of serfs, lords, and ladies, merchants, kings, and queens, squires, and knights. Knowledge about feudalism, the Crusades, trade, black death, and the eventual decline of feudalism in Europe. My students have gained a deeper understanding of the history, culture, geography, government, and economy during this time. We hope you enjoy these historical fiction stories. And now, to Medieval Storytellers. Nights in the Marshland The candles flickered in the darkness and shadows bounced off the cross. He could not believe it was the night before his dubbing ceremony. Twelve long years of preparing for this moment. Excitement filled his 19-year-old body as he knew he would be going going from a squire to a knight and soon fight in the Crusades. He would take the cross and try to reclaim Jerusalem for the Christians. It had been a long journey to become a knight, but he had made it after all of his hard work and preparation. Charles knelt at the altar. He knew it would be a long night of praying in the church. I did it, Sir Charles. I will become Sir Charles, Charles whispered softly. I am going to be a vassal for Lord Stuart and soon be on a crusade fighting for the church. Charles knew his dubbing ceremony was just a few hours away and his life, as he knew it, would change. He would not be returning to Sir Walter's land where he had lived since he was seven years old. Charles' dad was killed in a battle and after that, Charles was sent to live with Sir Walter's as a page. He had taught Charles everything he knew about being a knight, from caring for the horses, using his armor and weapons, and fighting in battles. Charles would miss Sir Walter. He would also miss Miss Frances. Delicious biscuits and eggs. She was the first person that spoke to Charles when he arrived at the manor, and she became like a mother to him since his mother died of fever when he was young. Charles has arrived at Sir Walter's Manor as a skinny, brown-haired little boy and was leaving a tall, muscular man with curly brown hair. The church bells rang out seven times. It was time. Charles began to pray. Dear Father in heaven, I pray you will protect me and guide me on my adventures for the kingdom. 
Please keep me and Scout safe. He's the best horse a knight could ask for. In Jesus' name, amen, said Charles. Charles got up from the church altar and wrapped his father's surcoat around his shoulder and headed out the door. Do you, Charles, take the code of chivalry and promise to uphold this code as long as you live and keep the oath of fealty to Lord Stuart? Sir Walter asked. I do, responded Charles. Do you promise to uphold the oath to honor and protect the King of England and the church? Continued Sir Walter. I do, responded Charles. Sir Walter pulled out a shiny sword and raised it in the air. Charles looked up and saw a large green stone in the handle of the sword. Could it be that Charles? I declare on this day that Sir Charles is now a part of the knighthood proclaimed Sir Walter, and lowered the massive sword to Charles' left shoulder. I present you with these golden spurs and this shield. May this protect you as you serve your king, church, and lord. This concludes the ceremony of homage, stated Sir Walter. Charles stood up, and Sir Walter held out the sword. This was your father's sword. It protected the church of England and knight and king. Your father was the bravest knight I've ever fought with, and I know you will make him proud, stated Sir Walter. Charles smiled and took the sword. Charles traveled a long, uh, to Lord Stuart's large manor the next day. Lord Stuart was a very wealthy man who lived in Winchester, England. Charles knew he would be protecting Lord Stuart, his property, and his land from harm. He also knew he would be heading on a crusade for the church in a few weeks. As he rode up to Ch Lord Stuart's manor on Scout, he saw the fields of wheat with peasants and serfs cutting down the stalks and filled their baskets. I will protect this land and these people, said Charles softly to himself. I am now the vassal of this fief and I will make Lord Stuart proud continued Charles. I will make sure wheat is harvested along with the rye, barley, peas, be and beans for Lord Stuart and the people on the land. Charles had heard about the Crusades and were taking place in Jerusalem and knew Pope Urban II dreamt of uniting the Christian Holy Land. Charles had a desire to go fight in the Crusades and he believed it would gain his salvation gain his salvation he also knew he would not have to pay taxes and debts would be forgiven when he was fighting in the crusades the time is now to go to england and fight in the crusades wrote sir charles in his letter to lord stuart thank you for allowing me to go fight for the church the manor will continue to be protected by the other knights the crops are doing well, and the peasants will deliver crops as soon as they are harvest. I will return, concluded Charles. He sealed it with a wax seal. Okay, Scout, are you ready? Sorry, boy, but it will be a long and heavy ride for you. And stay calm. I know there are a lot of horses around. I have my chainmail on, armor, shield, sword, and lance. Let's go to the east, Charles exclaimed as he rode with other knights and lords out of Western Europe.
Months had passed, and Charles and the other men had traveled through new areas leading leading to the east. They knew the fighting would begin soon because they were getting closer to Jerusalem. Charles, we must stay the night in in this village. I see a church up ahead. We can stay there, Sir Thomas stated. Sir Thomas had become Charles' closest friend during the Crusades. Okay, but I see smoke in the distance. I hope it is... I hope it will be safe. Let's first stop at this stand to get some food, replied Charles. The men got off their horses, and an unfamiliar smell entered Charles' nose. Might I have a bowl of rice? asked Charles to the lady under the hut and gave her a coin. She nodded and handed Charles a bowl of white rice, but there were little dots all in it. Charles took one bite and tasted a flavor he had never tasted before. Miss, could you tell me what is in this rice? Charles asked curiously. It has cinnamon, ginger, and nutmeg in it. They are spices, the lady responded. Charles knew he must take some spices back to England when he returned. He also discovered lemons, spinach, and sugar. He knew the people on the manor would love to bake and eat these new items and even grow them. The men entered the church and went to sleep. Within two hours of sleeping, a big rumble shook the church. Wake up, Sir Thomas. We must get to our horses. I think we may be under attack, whispered Charles. The men rushed out to their horses. Charles quickly got on scout and kicked his spurs in the side. But before he got too far, he heard Sir Thomas yell. No, not my horse, yelled Sir Thomas. Two Muslim soldiers had thrown spears at Sir Thomas, but they had hit his horse instead. The horse fell to the ground. Charles quickly turned Scout around and remembered his training with Sir Walter. Always go for their upper side. You will miss their armor and pierce their lungs. You are your father's son. The best knight I've ever seen, thought thought Charles. Go, Scout, yelled Charles as he drew his father's sword and charged one of the men. The man tried to spear Scout. But Charles blocked the spear with his shield and jabbed his sword under the man's left arm. The man slumped over his horse. Jump on Scout, yelled Charles as he charged towards Sir Thomas. But before he could reach him, a burning sensation filled his leg. Charles knew he had seconds to save his friend who was standing beside his dead horse. Charles swung his sword at the other attacker and struck the side of the man's arm. The man continued to swing his sword. Charles blocked the sword, and this time with his shield, and jabbed his sword into the side of the man. The man fell back, and Charles grabbed Thomas and threw him on his horse. We are getting one of their horses. Hold on, yelled Charles. Charles knew how to catch a horse. He had a lot of practice when he was a squire. Charles raced beside one of the horses. When he was close enough to the horse, he yelled to Sir Thomas, You grab Scout's reins and I'll jump on the horse. One, two, three, yelled Charles. Charles grabbed the other's horse's mane and flung his body over the horse and pulled the reins. The horse slowed down and both men were now riding beside each other. Are you okay, Sir Thomas? Were you hit? asked Charles. No, but Sir Sir Charles, your leg, gasped. Thomas. Charles looked down at his leg. I'm fine, just a scrape, he reassured Sir Thomas. 
The burning sensation started again in his leg and grew hotter as he rode. The blood soaked his pant leg. Charles and Sir Thomas continued for a few more miles until they found another church. This time, they hid their horses before entering the church. The men were greeted by the priest, and he got Charles water and bandages to wrap around his leg. Thank you for coming to fight in the Crusades and protect the pilgrimage path to the Holy City. You are only a few miles away from Jerusalem, where the Muslims were taken, have taken control again, said the priest. For the next few months, Charles and Sir Thomas fought in the Crusades in the Battle of Montgazard for King Baldwin IV of Jerusalem. The men joined 375 other knights, 80 Templars, and several thousand infantries. They were going up against the army of Saladin with 26,000 men. All right, men, we are going to defeat the army of Saladin. We will lead the men into the marshland. They won't know the land, and their horses will get trapped in the mud and fields. Follow my orders, and we will conquer the Muslims and win back Jerusalem. God is on our side, shouted King Baldwin IV. Charles and Sir Thomas were with a group of knights that were told to make noise and draw out the Saladin army to follow them into the marshland. Within hours of setting fires and blowing horns, the men could hear thousands of, thousands of horse running towards them. Okay, Sir Thomas, we are the best trained knights here. When you get the signal for, from King, follow me, ordered Charles. A horn blew three short sounds and echoed in the dark sky. Let's go, shouted Charles. The men and other knights rode their horses as fast as they could. Scout was running in and out of other horses and Charles, as Charles directed him. Charles turned to see if Sir Thomas was following close behind him, but he was nowhere to be seen. Scout, let's go, boy, Charles said as he pulled Scout's reins to turn him around. What are you doing? You're going to run right into the enemy, yelled the knight. Charles ignored him and dug his and dug his spikes into Scout's side. I have to find Sir Thomas. I will not leave him behind, Charles whispered to himself. Tom Thomas, call out. Thomas, Charles yelled. He knew he couldn't be too far behind him. I'm over here. This dumb horse wouldn't go anywhere and led, led him and went right into the muddy marsh. He's stuck, and I had to crawl off him, and now I'm stuck. Don't risk saving me. The Muslim army will be here in seconds. I hear the rumbling of their horses, cried Sir Thomas. I am not leaving until you are with me, so try to get your feet out, out of the mud. Catch my rope, yelled Charles. Sir Thomas was too far deep into the muddy marsh that Charles could not ride in to get him. He threw the rope, but it went too far to the left. Charles quickly pulled his rope back into his hands. He swung the rope again, and this time it landed near Sir Thomas. Grab the rope, wrap it around you, and don't let go. It's no use. I can't move, cried Sir Thomas. Hold on to the rope, yelled Charles. He could see the stars reflecting off the shields of the Saladin army as they got nearer. 
Go, Scout. Scout began to run, but wasn't going but a few inches. Go, Scout. Pull him out. Go, boy, encouraged Charles. Scout dug his hoofs into the ground and began to move. Sir Thomas was being pulled out of the mud. Charles quickly pulled Sir Thomas to his feet and got him on the back of his horse. Sir Thomas has locked both of his boots in the mud. Thank you, Sir Charles. You saved my life again. How will I ever repay you? cried Sir Thomas. Let's get out of this marshland and then we can talk about it, laughed Charles. On November 25th, 1177, the men were successful, successful in defeating the Saladin army. They had trapped the army in unfamiliar area. Charles convinced Sir Thomas to return to England with him and live on the manor. Sir Thomas knew he owed his life to Charles and wanted to help him on his land. The men returned to the manor with new ways to build better castles, learned ways to care for the sick, how to write the alphabet, and discovered the world was not as small as they thought. The Crusades has also opened new travel routes to the east and improved trading. Charles and Sir Thomas and other knights and lords all returned to their villages with goods to share in classical literature. Unfortunately, Jerusalem would soon be captured by the Muslims again and remain under their rules for the next 10 years. The medieval society was also would also decline in the future because of the knights challenging the power of the Catholic Church. The growing number of cities in the increasing in the increase of stronger and yeah, and the increase of stronger central government, the fet the feudal system would start to disappear with the changes in warfare and the creation of gunpowder and cannons. Knights would no longer be effective fighters with their heavy armor in, and one-on-one -on -one fighting, but for now, Charles and Sir Thomas were happy to be back on the manor. Miss Francis, what did you add to your biscuits? They have never tasted so good, exclaimed Charles. Only the best spices one could get from the east, a little bit of cinnamon and nutmeg, laughed Miss Francis. Charles' wish has come to true. Miss Francis was on his manor now, and he was eating her delicious biscuits and eggs for breakfast, along with his friend Sir Thomas, who was wearing a new pair of shiny boots. Market. They're my favorite part of the whole week. I don't know if it's the fresh new products, the excitement coursing through the air, or the familiar smiling faces of my frequent customers that make me so happy. As my boss, Bennett, and I set up our mobile fruit stand, I take a good survey of the market. The stand next to ours is decorated with beautifully blown glass, and one a few yards away is offering a bargain, two gorgeous necklaces for the price of one. I get back to work arranging a rainbow of fruits in an eye-catching display as Bennett tries to draw customers towards us. Fresh pears, Bennett calls through Cup's hands. Just six pence for three. I join in. Delicious fruit, I exclaim. Lemons, strawberries, peaches, and more. A woman with hair twisted into a series of intricate braids comes up to us. I grin with anticipation. May I offer you some peaches? I ask, gesturing towards the fruit display. They're fresh and ready to be enjoyed. The lady looks overwhelmed, her soft gray eyes darting from me to the produce and back again. Bennett glares at me. Don't overdo it, he warns quietly. I gulp and nod feverishly. 
The noble women end up purchasing some lemons and pears, giving us a shilling in return. Cedric, my boss, hisses under his breath as the lady walks away. I know you're excited for the market, but please try to act professional. Is that too much to ask? No, sir, I respond. I take a deep breath and try to contain myself as another customer approaches our booth. As the sun begins to set, Bennett and I clean up our stall. Bennett folds the banner and I gather up the leftover fruit. As I bend down to pick up a lemon from the ground, I notice two gray figures scurrying towards our fruit stand. Could they be rats? I think with the grimace. Ew, I've never been fond of rats. I'm actually quite afraid of them. Instead of acting like the mature apprentice I should be, I scream like a child. Bennett, I shout, dropping the lemon. It lands in the dirt with a thud. There are rats right here. I'm flailing my arms wildly, shouting at the top of my voice. Bennett gives me a furious look. We cannot go around advertising contaminated fruit. It's childish, and it could cause quite an uproar. A small crowd begins to form around us, looking confused. Rats, I just bought two shillings worth of your fruit, a lady balancing an infant on her hip cries, alarmed. I cannot feed my son this disgusting fruit now. She spits on the ground, as if that, as if that explains how mad she is. Her baby starts to wail. You're revolting, a nobleman in a scarlet silk mantle over his back accuses. I bite my bottom lip, worried. What if they weren't rats, I think? Has my fear gotten the best of me? Oh, what have I done? Um, he's seeing things, Bennett bellows, trying to camouflage his hurt pride with leadership. There's nothing here. Come along, Cedric. We finish packing up and try to ignore the dirty glare shot from us from various points, various sets of eyes. Bennett stalks off into the sunset, our deconstructed sand and toe. I scamper towards him, tripping over my own feet. Bennett, I'm sorry. Truly, I am. I'm just afraid. Cedric, I don't care about the rats. If we can sell rat-ridden food without our customers knowing, then so be it. But blabbing about it, it could ruin our whole career. Unacceptable. Bennett shakes his head disappointedly. I feel my eyes well up with tears. But I can't cry. Not in front of my boss. I swallow a lump a size of a horse in my mouth, in my throat. Just promise that you won't do it again. Bennett's voice catches it at the end like a question. I blink and hold back my tears. But why is he doing this? I think to myself. Will Bennett do anything for money? I want to get mad, but I know that I owe him everything. When my parents died and I was alone, Bennett took me in and gave me a home. Without a second thought, Bennett made me his apprentice and always took care of me. I shouldn't question Bennett's ways. I agree to the long haul of being a merchant. I look up at my boss and thank him silently. One week later. Wake up, Cedric. Bennett's hovering over my bed like a worker bee in a hive. Get up and get ready for work. We'll be late for work. Get ready for the market. I perk up instantly and leap out of bed. I make a break for the front door of our house and slip on our shoes. Oh, how lucky I am to live in with Bennett in a house. Every day feels like a fairy tale. Bennett gets out our supplies and loads them into our wheelbarrow. Come on, lad, he beckons, pointing at me with his index finger. I trot towards him and follow him out the door into a beautiful day. As we arrive at the market, I take a deep breath. The fresh spring air feels full of opportunity. I notice the same braided hair girl from last week. As I start to wave her over, I notice something different about her. There's a small purple spot just above her eyebrow. Too small to enlist the help of a doctor for, but large enough for people to comment on. She's meandering towards us and gives us a heart, a half-hearted flick of the wrist that I think is supposed to be a wave. Hello, um, Bennett trails off, realizing that he's not familiar with the noble woman's name. It's Raina, she supplies. She supplies weekly. Hello to you too. 
Are you feeling well, Raina? I inquire, locking eyes with her. Because you're looking tired and, and disheveled. And not to mention that bump above. Cedric, my boss hollers. What are you thinking? So inconsiderate and rude. No, no, it's fine, Raina assures us. I'll be fine. Can I just get a few peaches, please? That'll be six pence, Raina. Bennett returns to his business voice, as I like to call it. Bennett fishes, uh, Raina fishes the money from her pouch, but pauses in a huge coughing fit. She sounds like she's being strangled. I hold my breath, afraid until she's done. She comes up with the exact amount and presses it into Bennett's palm. Good day, she says solemnly, hanging her head and turning away. Good day, my boss and I echo. Good heavens, I yelp as soon as Raina's out of earshot. What happened to her? I keep my eye on the lady as she pays the vendor for a dish of gold. She isn't looking well, Bennett remarks, a hint of sorrow in his voice. She might be gone soon. Gone as in, I can't even bring myself to say it. Dead, Bennett finishes for me. I think back when my mother and father died when I was a lad. I was so helpless until Bennett provided me with the tools of the trade of the merchant business. Oh, I'm so grateful for him. But what if Bennett gets one of those lumps, I think, with worry? He could get sick and, and, oh, I can't even think of it. If he dies, I'll be alone all over again. I suck in my breath and lock eyes with my boss. But you won't leave me, right, Bennett? I ask nervously. Bennett gives me a confused look but answers the questions anyway. No, never, he promises, a sad, sympathetic smile dancing across his lips. We're together till the end. One week later. Bennett and I get an early start to on the road to the market today. We pass a colorful booth of mantles and a stand with exquisitely decorated vases on our way. I hear a snippet of a joke being shouted by a jester to whoever would listen, and the clinking of change being dropped into collection boxes. But for some reason, the weekly market doesn't seem as lively as it usually does. Bennett and I set up our stand on a dirt road that was once occupied by many vendors and stands, but is now only being used by us and a children's puppet show. We did not sell a single thing. No one came to our booth, so Bennett and I ended up leaving early. I don't know what I was expecting, considering that our customer population had dwindled down to next to none. We returned to our house at dinner time, so Bennett asked me to pick out some fruit for us to eat. He goes inside, leaving me alone with our fruit stand in the front of the house. I examine the selection, then destroyed on strawberries. Something juicy and sweet might lighten our moods. I start stacking strawberries into my cradled arm. I'm down to the last layer when I let out a high-pitched high sh shriek of pure fear. Rats! I do my best to keep my balance as I abruptly rock back on my heels. I consider telling Bennett, then ultimately decide against it. Bennett didn't care before, so why should he care now? I collect myself and re-enter the house, hoping that I look as calm as I think I do. Perfect strawberries, Bennett remarks from his wooden chair next to the window. Bring some over here. I obey, and Bennett takes a few out of my arm. Don't be a stranger, he jokes, red juice dribbling down his chin. Sit down, have some food. Um, I'm not hungry, I lie, wringing my hands. I'm going back outside. Two days later. I don't feel too well, Bennett groans from his bed. He's curled up in his blanket like a butterfly in a cocoon. His face is as red as the strawberries he consumed two days prior, and he sounds weak. How about another blanket? I asked timidly. You can have mine. I gingerly fold my mahogany blanket into a tiny square and bring it over to him. I stop at Bennett's bedside and cover his legs with my blanket where he looks particularly cold. <gasps> I gasp, taking a step back. Bennett, dear heavens, your legs are covered in dark lumps, just like Raina's. Are you going to be all right? Oh, dear, you won't, Bennett. You need a doctor. Just let me rest, Bennett insists in an angry grunt. He looks as he's about to start a new phrase, but coughs just about a thousand times in a row. Nonsense. I, uh, can you walk? I ask, crossing my arm. 
He nods slowly and uncertainly. Then get up. I'm taking you to the monastery. There must be someone who can help you there. I hold my hand out to Bennett, and, and he reluctantly grasps it. One day later, Bennett and I are waiting outside the monastery in a line before, behind six other people. I'm the only healthy one, the only one without impromptu coughing fits or mysterious bumps. Why can't we go inside, I wonder? Why is everyone sick? Suddenly, a monk in a beige tunic opens the humongous monastery doors. No new patients are welcome, he murmurs, and shuts the doors. That's not fair, I exclaim angrily, throwing my fist in the air. My boss needs help. He is sick and dying. I am fine, Bennett insists quietly, pulling me away. Let's just go home, lad. Three days later, Bennett looks awful. The bumps have spread to his arms and face, and he can't get through his sentence without coughing, and he's too feeble to get out of bed. I'm quite worried about him. Anything to eat? I ask, hoping I sound more positive than I feel. I can't eat anything, Bennett mutters. I'll just throw it up. Oh, I say, as if it's not a big deal. But it is. Losing my boss and my dearest friend is like the end of my world. One day later, Bennett's hugging his chamber pot close to him and puking his guts out into it. I wrap my blanket over his shoulders and squeeze my eyes shut as tightly as they can go. I don't want to see him suffer. Parts of Bennett's skin have turned coal black. And there's hardly any life left in him. I'm so worried. I don't know what I would do without him. Two days later, Bennett is dead, gone forever. The sickness was going to take him over sooner or later, I guess. I've never felt so sad in my life. He's lying on the ground, eyes frozen open in pain. Lumps as large as mountains are scattered across his limbs. There's only one thing left to do. Say goodbye. Six months later. Miraculously, I survived the disease that what is left of England now refers to as the plague. I carry on our fruit business by myself at markets and festivals to commemorate my dearly departed boss and friend. Although we've lost most of England, the survivors are now very close. The streets aren't as loud, a lot of houses are vacant, and markets aren't as packed as they used to be, but I feel a sense of belonging. I imagine Bennett watching me from heaven every day, proud of me for being brave enough to survive. The end. Cock-a-doodle-doo, the rooster sings annoyingly. I groan and sit up, trying to collect my senses before a full day's work. As I sit up, the straw in my extra-thin pallet shifts to the side, so I'm basically sitting on nothing. Wake up, Sebastian, Ma quietly whispers to my older brother while poking him in the shoulder. He hasn't been waking up lately at dawn to work. Maybe he is up and just doesn't want to move. Pa has been working him so hard lately, probably because he's about to become an adult. I wish childhood was longer. Fourteen is not enough time to be a child. We should have at least 16 years of childhood. Not that there's much fun to have when you're a child. Caitlin, Ma said while grabbing a bucket um, to put the pigs and chickens food into. Are you ready? I must have been staring into space while everyone got ready. Pa and Sebastian had already left for the fields. Yes, I'm sorry, Mother, I say, as I stand up and pick a long stick to move the logs into a formation to make the fire bigger and brighter. I throw the stick out of the little hut we call home and help Ma carry the buckets to the pigs. I stop in my tracks, thinking I heard something. Ring, 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 the church bell chimes. But I realize this isn't a ring for morning prayers. This is a rush kind of ring, as an emergency ring. Ma and I look at each other and turn to face the house and jog to our doorless entryway. We always meet in front of our house and walk down to ch- together as a family. Pa and Sebastian were right behind us and we walked down to the church together. 
I gagged as we walked through our manure-filled path that are muddy and disgusting. We make our way to the middle of the crowd to get a good look at why we are here. My mouth dropped, and Ma gasped. Before me stood Lord Gas, Conrad Alpy the steward, and a young adult maybe four years older than me. Lord Gast hasn't visited Winton Seaster in years. Also, something looked off with the kid, but I couldn't figure it out. Out of nowhere, he raised his hand for silence and started to speak. Good morning, everyone. I know it has been a while since I visited. You're sure right about that, someone yelled from the, from, someone from the crowd yelled. He looked very poor and angry at the Lord. It was not hard to find the hatred in his eyes. I heard a snap coming from the Conrad's cruel and cold fingers, and moments later, the guy was gone. The steward never hesitated to take action. Lord Gash continues, As you all probably know, Winton Seaster's people are weak, and parents can barely feed their children, so it makes perfect sense to get rid of some of them to fight for me, he said in a gleeful tone. Enough from me. Yet this, let this young lad speak for me. The kid l- turned to look at the crowd, and it seemed like his childhood ended before 14. He looked like 30 years old. He looks like he had millions of battle scars and a very stern and restricted expression upon his face. My name is Robin Drudd. I have been sent ahead of my troops to talk to Lord Gast. We were informed by the previous village that he would be arriving, so I came for his approval. Everyone looked to Lord Gast as to giving him a look like you did this to us, then back at Robin. Robin inhaled and continued his horrid speech. We are asking for young adults ages 14 to 15 come with us at dusk. We need at least 15 soldiers to continue. People close to the age limits may come at their own will or may be forced to if we do not have enough soldiers to continue. New soldiers will meet at the church tonight. Thank you. Lord Gas waved us away. They kept it very short and simple, as to mocking in some shape or way. Some families fell to their knees sulking. Others, though feeling simply sympathy for the unfortunate families, silently embraced in happiness that their children were either too young or too old. Ma, Pa, Sebastian, and I were mixed emotions. I wouldn't have to go because I was 10 and female. My brother, on the other hand, was strong, tall, and about to turn 14, so I might be forced to go. By the time this crazy town meeting was over, it was time for midday worship. The priest invited everybody in. As I passed him, I saw how tired and stressed he was. The meeting probably didn't help that. We sat down in a row across from sobbing, from a sobbing, sobbing family. They must have a member leaving them tonight. I put my head down and say a quick prayer for them, though it probably won't help. The priest started a chant to begin worship, so we stood up and began to sing. I heard the sorrow and helplessness in some families' voices. We finished the song and sat down. He gave us ten minutes to pray on our own for whatever we want. He already knew what we were praying about, but Lord Gast didn't have a clue. I made a cross upon my chest and prayed that St. Giles will lead those kids to safety and help their families live a somewhat happy life. When the time was up, we sang another song. Everyone stood up, said their thanks, and ran home with their families. We did just as they did, watching out for soldiers as we went. They're not even going to get past the Alps, Ma whispered to Pa, but I overheard. We knew that the family... Family and Brace will have to wait till nighttime so we do not get caught. Pa grabs Sebastian by the shoulder and drags him back to work. I walk with Ma back to the chickens and pigs, and I begin to throw food in front of their feet so they see it. Why are they taking so many innocent children away from their families? I don't understand, Ma, I say. Tears started to roll down my face. 
I really don't know, Caitlin. They just think about themselves. They think about land and power. I agree. It makes no sense whatsoever, Ma replied. I went back to working thinking about all the poor families that will most likely be using a, losing a young son. As I finished feeding the animals, I think about Sebastian. His birthday was in five days to turn 14. If Robin came any later, my brother would be leaving me forever. I don't know what I would do without him. I probably would never laugh again. I follow Mom back home and walk right back out with a bucket made of straw woven together, and it's filled with the few clothes we own. We walk down to the river and fill up two pails with water. Mom puts some soap into the two pails, and we begin to wash the clothes. I rub and rub until my fingers go numb. Ma, can you finish for me while I go prepare dinner? I say while rubbing my fingers to get them moving again. Yes, I suppose so, Ma responds. She was rubbing her fingers to get them moving too. I jog home through the muddy path and begin to make vegetables and oatmeal for the family, an easy meal that I make often. I use our wood bowls and serve the food. I set them on the pallets and go back to the water to get Ma. Dinner is ready, Ma, I say while poking her in the back to get her to turn around. She looks straight into my eyes. I can see the fear in hers. I saw them take the children from their families, dragging them from their father's arms. I saw it, Ma said. She was hugging me so tight I couldn't breathe. You and Sebastian are lucky children. Just, just know that. She stood up and wiped her tears away. We went to the fields to get Pa and Sebastian. Pa, it's time for dinner, I say. He looks up and sees Ma's sad face, and he walks over to her and puts his arm around her. They would talk quietly and walk home together, leaving Sebastian and me in the fields. I'm just finishing up my section. I'll be up back in a few minutes, Sebastian said. Are you sure, I say, unsure if I should leave him? Yes, I will be fine. Okay, whatever you say. I turned and went home to eat. I sat down and put the bowl in my lap. I used my fingers to pick up the vegetables and oatmeal. Pa stares at me like I'm crazy. Where's Sebastian? We can't let him be alone, Pa said. I'm sorry, I didn't know. Seconds later, we see Lord Gas, and we fall silent. Your son Sebastian wanted you to see this. Take it to the priest for him to read it to you, Lord Gas said. Without hesitation, we speed walk to the church. We were surprised to see other families there, too. Luckily, we were next in line. But when the family walked out sobbing, my gut filled with worry instantly. I gulped down and walked in. I probably looked like a fool because the priest was looking at me like I've just lost my mind. Frankly, I barely had one to begin with. All serfs never get an education. We just work so the other kids that were born into royalty can go to school. May I read your letter? The priest said, looking at Ma. Yes, Ma responded and handed it to him the note, curious to know what's happening with Sebastian. I went to his side and began to read the letter aloud. Dear Caitlin, John, and Maria, I have written this letter to inform you about your family's family member, Sebastian. As you know, he is not currently present. Sebastian has come with me while you were eating dinner. He informed me he was unhappy with his life as a serf with me. I listened to him speak for quite a while. Sebastian told me he wanted to join the troops. Ma and I fell to the ground on our knees. I put my hand against my face and started bawling. Dad wiped his eyes. The priest didn't show any emotion and continued. I hate to be the one to break the news, but he will be leaving with Robin tonight. Stopping him will result in one month with no pay or possibly even being declared a wolf's head. Sincerely, Lord Gass. I'm sorry about your news. Please exit the building and tell the next family to come in. It looked like the priest was trying not to show emotion like he had warned, like he had been warned. I wipe my tears away from my face and tell the next family to go inside. I knew that Sebastian wouldn't do that to us. On the other hand, Ma was bawling and couldn't, couldn't stop.
The closer we got to home, the worse Mom's crying got. It was getting dark, so Ma, Pa, and I all laid down on our skinny pallets and stared at the ceiling. It was obvious that no one in town would get much sleep tonight. I started thinking about bravery and war. It's so unfair and cruel, young adults fighting. People just need to learn how to make an agreement instead of fighting for years and years. Sebastian would never fight because he was forced to. He likes to make his own decisions. I always have decisions made for me. I'm sick and tired of it. Of it. Ma is going to have me start my apprenticeship early so I can make money for the family. I think and think until an idea pop- pops into my head. I'm going to go save Sebastian. I will be brave and courageous. Ma, Pa, wake up. I need to tell you something, I whisper. I knew I wouldn't be able to do this by myself. Also, no one knew this town better than my family. We spent time together and went places with each other instead of working every second of the day. They both sat up and looked at me. I could tell they haven't slept at all yet. I have, a, I have a plan to save Sebastian. I'm going whether you like it or not, so either help me or live with that guilt. I felt my chest puff up with pride. This was going to happen. Ma looked at me like I was sick and felt my forehead, but I was just filled with adrenaline. If you are so confident, tell us your plan, and be quiet or we'll, we will be taken too, Pa whispered with a threatening tone. I was thinking that we could go back, could take the back row of the houses where the guards don't go. Also, there's this hole in the back of the church, just big enough for us to fit into. That will lead us into the priest's house. I already know he will help us. The guards won't be in the back of the church. There might only be one soldier inside. Then all we have to do is hide behind the sleeping young boys and make our way to Sebastian. It will work. I know it will. But we have to hurry, and the troops can't be far from her. And what do we do once we have Sebastian? Plus, if we are walking back, we'll probably be caught from the incoming soldiers, and we'll be declared wolf heads. Pa said, well, I do only, I do have some friends nearby that could help, Ma said. We only have to live in hiding for a year and one day. Then we're free. You could finally become a merchant. Why are you agreeing with her? Pa said angrily. Because I'm tired of living this life. Never have anything to eat. Having no choice whatsoever. I'm tired of it, Ma snapped back. I understand. We'll have it your way then, Pa said, lowering his head. Now let's go. There's nothing to pack, nothing to lose, I say. Pa stands up and looks out back to watch for soldiers. He gives us a wave, signaling us to walk over. I ran into the crop since they were tall and our only hiding place and told Ma and Pa to follow. I peek my head out in and out of the crops to watch for anything that might cause us harm. We continued forward. Luckily, the crops will keep us hidden until we get behind the church. That's where stuff gets risky. I moved my way through the pigs and chickens on the on the ground sleeping. If one of them wakes up, it could blow our cover. Stop, I see a soldier, Pa says, almost inaudibly. Instead of stopping, I quickly run over and put my back against the church wall. The soldier disappears from sight, and Ma runs over. Come on, Pa, I say. He runs for the church wall, and balk, a chicken screams. Pa must have stepped on its foot while running. He continues to run, and we hear a soldier coming towards us. I push Mom into the hole, and she disappears into the priest's little home connected to the church. Next, Pa goes, and he's gone in seconds. I hear the soldier coming closer, and I jump into the hole, but my shirt gets caught on a screw sticking out from the stone wall. I can hear his footsteps, even though all the chickens are clucking so loud. Hey, you there, he said, pointing at me. "Uh Uh-oh, I thought. I pull and pull at my shirt. It starts to rip, and I see his hand inching towards me. I pull with all my might, and it rips. Pa pulls me into the little home. It looked like Pa had already talked to the priest. Hide there, under the floorboard. 
the priest said. In no time, we were all jammed into the little hole in the floor. He shut the board on us as the same soldier who saw me came in. Where are they? I saw them come in here, the soldier said. The, they ran outside and slammed the door. I was just about to get you. They went south, the priest said in his best acting voice. Without another word, he walked out. The priest bent down towards the floorboard. I'm going to get Sebastian and keep him captive while they hold be and then you'll be on your way, the priest walked into the church. I sure hope I was right about him being captured, I say. I held my breath. The door opened, and I heard Sebastian saying to the priest that he didn't want to be a soldier. I was right. I pushed open the wooden board, and Sebastian jumped back. No time for explaining. You guys must leave. Now, the priest said. He opened the door and looked out. The coast is clear. Take the field and go north. Following his instructions, we ran to the fields, crouching down. We made our way to the trees. When we begin to run, just keep running until I tell you to stop. We will most likely be declared wolf's head, heads, but we'll only have to keep safe for a year and a day. We have no other choice. And Ma has some friends nearby that can help. Three, two, one, go, Ma said. I sprinted for I don't know how long. Finally, Pa said stop, and I dropped to the ground, exhausted. I hear someone coming, Ma said. They must be on horseback. We all sprinted for a huge tree next to us. It was large enough to fit all of us behind it. I heard them talking, though in a language I could not understand. They left as quickly as they came, and soon they were out of sight. The coast was clear. I think it's time we get some sleep. I'm sure we are going to need the rest. We have a long journey ahead of us, Ma said. Good night, I say. Good night, Pa and Sebastian say in unison. It was November 30th, 1066. I was minding my own business and doing things that a vassal would. I was watching over the serfs doing their work. Then a messenger started running up to me. He gave me, a reg he gave me my regular mail, but there was a shiny letter. I immediately could tell it was William. He always sent letters with shiny paper. The letter read, Hello, Robert. It is me, William, your lord. I need you to gather up your men for me, including you. You need to help me invade England. I was the rightful heir, heir but Harold got got the got the Harold got got Harold got the oh my god Harold got the crown. Sincerely, William. After a day of gathering up troops, we marched to England. We marched in and captured many people. Later, they were under under siege. A few days later, a messenger came up to me and said, I am sorry to inform you. Your father is deadly sick. I'm in shock. I couldn't believe my ears. I said, you must be joking, right? The messenger doesn't reply. He just runs away. An hour later, I composed myself, so I went to William. I say, hello, William. My father is deadly sick, so I need to go back home. He says, I can't let you do that, Robert. We don't have a large enough army for you to leave. You're one of three knights that I have. I need you. I interrupt and say, you're saying I can't go back home. He answers, yes. I stormed out with anger filling up from my head to my toe. I slept restless, restlessly, thinking, Harold, that idiot, 
He is so greedy that I can't go home from my father. A week later, the battle starts. I have my serfs around me as my horse horse starts running. I stick my lance out, stabbing many people. I was slicing through their army like it was nothing. My anger spilling out into my lance. In about five minutes, I see Harold, and I start nearing him. Long bows were being shot at me, but my armor protected me. I was right next to Harold, and I stabbed him right in the chest. Harold says, Spare me. I will please. I will do anything. I say, I can't spare you. Harold says, Please, anything. I will do anything. I reply, That's what a coward would say. I pull out the lance. I know I disobeyed the code of chivalry, but I had so much anger in me. My horse runs back to the side where most of the Normandy troops are. There were enemy waves after that, but we had the momentum in our position. The English army eventually gave up. We went back to Normandy. Since Harold had died, William had become the king of England. I was named the Duke, and William personally attended my inauguration. I received many awards for my excellence in the Battle of Hastings. That one battle changed so much for me and gave me many more opportunities to do other things than just being a knight or vassal. The Escape I knew I needed to get up, yet I wasn't doing it. The thought of me getting caught past curfew just ran through my head. Somehow, I ignored that thought and slowly got up out of bed. Every time the wood creaked on the floor below me, I got more and more scared. When I got to the door, I slowly opened it and tiptoed outside. I knew I'd just stayed down and off the main road. All of a sudden, I heard some rustling and voices coming from straight ahead of me. I quietly and very quickly stepped off to hide behind a bush. I started to overhear what they were saying. Where could he be? One of them asked with a, with a look of confusion on his face. He's not in his bed, the other one said. What's his name again? Robert, the other one said firmly. The thing was, my name was Robert. How I thought, as I, can, as I continued to listen to them, I heard them say that I was to be killed for a crime. That meant I was to be treated... They said that anyone could kill me, too. I knew for a fact that I needed to leave the town right now. It was a small town not far from Paris. I knew I wouldn't go there. I don't know where I'm going to go. Once they passed by, I crept over to the forest and began moving, the opposite direction through many trees and plants. As I stayed moving for a while, not looking back at all, I started to really think about what I had done. I didn't do anything wrong. I always did not like that town anyway. I was surprised it took me 16 years to run away. I was just sad I was leaving my mother by herself and lonely. Then after walking for a while, I started to hear footsteps behind me. I kept looking, but I saw nothing and no one. I then stopped. Standing there silently, I was extremely scared. I knew for sure there was someone watching me right now. I just didn't know who or where this person was. Then I saw a tall man rise from behind a bush. It took me by surprise, so I jumped back. We were both silent. His dark brown eyes glared down at me. I was very scared, but also curious at the same time. I then called myself and asked, who are you? For a while, he didn't respond and just stared at me until he finally said, 
Robert, stunned fire. I fired back. How do you know my name? We need to go, he said, while keeping a straight face the whole time. He then turned the other way and started walking without saying a word. I don't know what made me follow him, but I just did. After a few minutes of walking, he began to explain to me what was happening and who he was. He said his name is John and was sent by my mother to show me a better life in a new town. For the next few days, he kept walk- we kept walking and then stopping at night. Then randomly, John pulled me into a bush and said, Hush, very quietly. I did as he said and didn't ask any questions. I was still confused, and then I saw them. My mouth dropped as I realized it was the steward and his serfs. I was quiet as possible, but then I realized it probably wasn't long before they saw us. Run, he said. It took me a few seconds to do it, but I bolted out of there, not looking back once. After a little while, I stopped to take a rest and looked back, breathing heavily. I looked closely back to where I'd come from, then I was stunned at what I was looking at. It was John fighting off all ten of them. He used nothing but a weak sword. I knew I should keep running, but I couldn't leave him. After a short time of fighting, it got down to just John and the steward. Even though I wasn't the one fighting, I was still scared. They fought for the longest time until now John had taken the steward's sword. It was over. John started to walk over to me, limping. We have to keep moving. We're almost there. We then walked for a little bit longer, and then at last we finally reached our destination. It was a small town, but I knew it would be perfect. The Aftermath What had we done? What possible sin could we have committed to to deserve such injustice? The town had been destroyed, torn apart. The outer walls had mostly collapsed. Many homes had been abandoned, and others had been burnt down to their foundations. I smelled the ash in the air, the stench of the rotting human flesh. Has God abandoned us? I thought. This was all that cursed Abbot's fault. He said that I would be helping the village recover, not salvaging it. Looking at the town in its current state, I knew I wouldn't be helping the village recover. I'll provide the dead with their sacred rights to to lift their souls from purgatory and perhaps a worthy grave. And for the living, I will offer asylum in the monastery I represent. I knew if I was to find any survivors, I would need to search through the town. Being a friar, I didn't bring much with me to the town, other than the clothes I wore right now, and a small amount of bread for travel to the town. But even that was mostly gone by now. As I turned one corner in search of survivors, I found a diseased corpse. It was that of a young girl, wearing a locket. She had buboes all over her arms and legs, blood-stained her clothes. I checked her pulse. Nothing. I slung her over my shoulder and continued onward. Curious, I opened the locket. Inside was the name Reagan. I said a silent prayer for this poor girl. How could God have wanted this, I thought. After a few minutes of searching, I heard someone's voice coming from the ruins of a general store. It had been burnt down to its frame. Only bits and pieces of its outer wall remained. I set the girl down. On the door was a painted red X. I pushed the door aside and began searching through the store to find any survivors, or perhaps a spade. When I entered, I heard some muffling. I ran towards its origin. So someone did survive this mess, I thought. I found the voice coming from a pile of rubble in the main room. I pushed some I pushed aside some of the rubble. I could still 
Hear the voice moaning in pain. When I pushed aside the rubble, I unveiled a young boy. He had blonde hair and green eyes. When I reached over for his wrist to check his pulse, he groaned, Thank you, sir. I replied, What happened to this place? Plague swept in, he replied weakly. Well, why did you stay? You'd been good as dead if I wasn't here to help. I said, You first, why are you here? I'm a friar, and I was sent to help the town recover. Your turn, I responded. Uh, I'm an apprentice. I worked for my master here. He grew sick one day. I did my best to help him recover, but he soon passed. And shortly following his death, I heard something banging on the door in our main room. They had nailed the door shut and set the house on fire. The house collapsed and I got stuck under the rug. He replied begrudgingly. Why in God's name did they do that? I questioned. should have known better. When someone is reported dead, their possessions are burned in a short time following their pass passing. He responded, well, that's tough. Uh, my name's Friar Walter. What's yours? I said, name's Tyler's. Tyler Smith. Here is, he replied. Well, Tyler, do you wish to... Help me bring those who fell in this village away from purgatory, I questioned. Save who from what? He replied, confused. As a friar, I can perform the sacred rites on the dead, and in doing so, lifting them from purgatory, and placing them among God, where he will judge them. So it is now my job to grant the dead with a worthy grave, and for the living, I offer asylum in my monastery. And in a related note, would you know where to find a spade? I said. My master would keep one in his supply closet. We could search through the rubble and find it. He replied. Good idea, Tyler, I said. Then I helped him out of the rubble. We began looking around for this spade. Soon after we located the spade, we began digging a grave for that girl, Reagan. Tyler would find a suitable area and help me carve out the grave. I would do most of the digging. And so we continued like that for a good time. When night came, we would lay out under the stars. After our work was nearly finished, I said to Tyler, I believe our work here is nearly done. How would you like to come with me back to my monastery? We could provide you with food, shelter, and you could help us out from time to time. Perhaps you could hear the call of God for a priestly vocation. Either way, we will care for you. Uh, sir, Tyler responded, I understand if you... I stammered. No, sir, that on your arm, he interrupted. I looked down at my arm, and on it was a boobo, the first sign of the plague. Battle for the Cross It was summer, though the inhabitants of Castle Defenda Terra Sancta Est would not know it. The insides of the castle were wet and dark. Wherever Daniel stepped, water sloshed up over his metal boots, dampening his socks. As Daniel ran, a cool wind blew through the arrow slits in the castle walls, chilling him even through his chainmail and tunic. Daniel could hear the clang of the smithy's hammer on metal, forging some weapon of war to fight the Muslims of the East. Daniel was itching for a chance to plunder the treasure of the Muslims, 
Those who came here to atone for their sins were fools. The crusade was for gold. Daniel knew he should be at his post, but he had overslept and was yet to decide if it was the will of God or the devil. When he had awoken, he was in the middle of a wonderful dream where he was standing in the shadows of a grand castle surrounded by the smells um, of spices from the Muslim markets. Daniel sat on a raised throne surrounded by his vassals as he breathed in the smell of roasted pheasant and thyme. He, still the lord of the land, he owned it all, even what his vassals stood on. Daniel rose to give an important speech to his citizens, and then he woke up. As Daniel recalled his dream, he longed to be back in that fantasy land. What was I about to tell my citizens? He wondered while he climbed the ladder to his station. On top of this watchtower, the heat of summer was quite evident. Daniel, how art thou? shouted a guard from the other watchtower. Zack, I thought I would be posted with John. You know how he is, Daniel yelled back. Ha, he's no oh, better than you, Zack replied. He isn't bad. He's just like us, yelled a man from the other tower. He, he's not a Christian, Zack yelled at the man. Daniel couldn't take the arguing anymore, so he sat down. The heat was so unbearable that Daniel yanked his helmet off and dropped it on the ground, panting. After a few minutes of sitting there in the heat with his head exposed, he collapsed against the curtain wall watchtower. Daniel, said a voice. Daniel, said the voice, louder this time. Daniel, yelled the voice. Ah! What? Who are you and what do you want? Daniel yelled, pulling out his sword and slicing at the air. Daniel, it's just me, yelled Zack from the floor of the watchtower. He had ducked to avoid getting cut by Daniel's wild sword swinging. I saw two men walking past the east gate. They may have noble intentions, but they passed by the gate. Go tell Sir Edgar, for I cannot with my injured leg. I will get two more men into their armor to go with you, Zack said. I will, yelled Daniel and climbed down the ladder. Zack followed. Daniel ran off one way and Zack limped the other. As Daniel ran down the corridor, rats scurried under his feet and his stockings, which had been dry, were now wet again. The ceiling leaked of water that had not disappeared into the air yet and dripped on Daniel's head, making his golden hair look like hay. He passed two servants on his way to Sir Edgar's chambers, but didn't say hello. The entrance to Sir Edgar's chamber was a large arch filled with two enormous oak doors, guarded by a man dressed in mail and a tunic. "'What business have ye here?' asked the guard. "'I have come with an urgent warning for the head knight,' replied Daniel. It "'Sir Edgar wishes not to be disturbed,' said the guard impatiently. Yeah, yeah, I know, but this is urgent, Daniel said, equally impatient. Fine, just don't mention it to me when he brings hell down upon you, the guard said and stepped aside. Daniel pushed open the oak doors and was greeted by the rough voice of Sir Edgar. How dare ye intrude upon my deserved and needed slumber, yelled Sir Edgar. My name is Daniel Harrison and I am a guard on the curtain wall. I have spotted two men with possibly unholy motives heading past the east gate. Go to them now, for any honest business in is conducted inside these walls, Sir Edgar ordered Daniel. Yes, sir, Daniel said and hurried from the room. Daniel ran and ran until he approached the exit. He stepped out from the belly of the dark castle and was assaulted by sunlight. 
Through the bright light, he could make out Zack and two others, both mounted on steeds. As Daniel approached, he could tell that the two men were Brody and Abraham. What took you so long? Zack asked. I was held up by Edgar's guard. You gave him a good fight, didn't you? Joked Abraham. Don't joke about that, exclaimed Brody. I'll joke about what I want, said Abraham. Just go, yelled Zack, and with that, Daniel mounted his horse and rode off. As the trio rode under the por porticollis, it started to rain. After riding for ten minutes, the hard ground had turned to mud under the hooves of their horses. So, what are you planning to do with the treasures from the barbarians' temples? asked Abraham. I am going to buy lots of land and sell it, sell it to acquire vassals. Eventually, I will have an army to fight in the king's campaigns instead of me. I will be a wealthy noble and manage my lands with my wife, answered Daniel. Good idea, but, I, but I'm going to buy a manor with serfs to tend to the land. I, it will even have a bed, said Abraham. This crusade is not about money or gems, yelled Brody. It is about recapturing the holy land to atone for our sins. Yeah, yeah, sins the Pope, yada, 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 mocked Abe through his helmet. What miserable weather, said Daniel to change the subject. Look at all those ditches, Abe said, pointed to the place where the constant tread of horses' hooves had made a muddy ditch ten feet wide. All of a sudden, out of the mud came, two came the two men Zack had seen. They sprinted towards Brody's horse. It reared back on its hind legs in surprise. The two men slammed into it, and it fell from the force of the blow. Brody screamed as the horse fell on his leg. The first attacker pulled out a sword and ran at Abe, and the second brought an axe down upon Brody. The sound of the axe slicing through Brody's mail and flesh could barely be heard over the sound of his scream. The attacker pulled the axe from Brody's chest and hit him again. The second attacker swung his sword as at Abe, but he managed to pull away and deliver a bro a blow in the direction of his opponent. The attacker swung again, and Abe's horse slipped, spraying mud all over the combatants. Daniel wiped his face clean of mud and dismounted his horse. He ran to Brody's side and knelt in the mud. Don't die on me, Brody! Not after all we've been through together! Daniel said through tears. Images flashed through his mind. Images of he, Brody, and Abe in the tavern drinking ale. Brody's wedding his son and Brody is playing with wooden swords. Through the pain of these images, he heard the shriek of metal on metal and stood up. All of a sudden, Brody's attacker charged at him and stabbed him. Daniel looked down and saw the point of a sword poking through his torso. Then came the pain. The pain of hundreds of iron rings cutting into his flesh along with the point of the sword. Daniel let out a horrible scream. His attacker removed the sword and pushed him into the ditch. The last thing Daniel saw was Abe falling from his horse and his helmet being split by an axe. Daniel awoke to pain. There was pain everywhere, from the wound on, him, on his stomach to the mental wounds of losing two of his closest friends. Daniel was bruised from head to toe from being thrown into the muddy ditch. He sat up and spit out mud and blood from his mouth. Daniel crawled out of the ditch despite the protests of his wounds and saw the bloody mess before him. Abraham's body was sprawled out in the mud. His helmet split through the crack. He could see the spot where the axe had split his skull. To the left of Abraham's body was Brody's, half sunken into the mud. The wound that had caused his death was still obvious even through the mud covering it. Meanwhile, 
The two men who had ambushed Daniel, Abe, and Brody pulled out daggers from their belts and proceeded to scale the wall of the gatehouse. When they reached the top, they pulled themselves over the tower wall. The man stationed there was so surprised by the intrusion of these men into the castle that he froze, giving the man that had killed Abe enough time to claim another victim. They hoisted the body over the castle wall and walked down the stairs into the room where the where the winch that raised the portcullis resided. The man in the room was quickly disposed of in the same manner as the last, a quick thrust of the dagger through the throat. Further down the curtain wall, a man called Henry made an astonishing and horrifying discovery. An army! Henry shouted. An army of Muslims have come to take back the Holy Land! He lit a fire with the flint and the pile of wood on e- that each tower was provided with and repeated what he had yelled. From outside the castle walls, Daniel heard the call and he ran up to the portcullis and yelled, Let me in! I'm a soldier here! Let me in! No response. After repeating his call a few more times, Daniel decided that taking the secret door was his best chance. He knocked the secret knock. Um... And a section of the curtain wall opened. As the door opened, Daniel was greeted by Zack. I thought you were dead! Zack exclaimed. Thank the good Lord above that you aren't. What happened to you? We need to get you cleaned up. I can bandage myself. Now go get yourself a a sword and a shield and me a dagger and two shields, Daniel said. Two? Zack asked. Yes, now make haste, Daniel said. He ran as fast as his wounds permitted him over to the smithy. He grabbed the rag that the smithy used to clean the weapons and dunked it into the cooling water. Daniel pressed the wet wet cloth up to the wound on his torso inside. It felt so much better. He tied the rag around his stomach to stop any bleeding and went to meet Zack. I got an extra set of armor because God knows that you need one, said Zack, and he gestured to Daniel's cut in the bloody armor. He helped Daniel remove the old armor, using a table knife to pick the iron rings out of Daniel's wounds. The process was excruciating. The new armor was a tunic of chainmail worn over a long wool skirt. That was covered by a tunic. Dis- tunic displaying the cross of us Jesus was crucified on. On his legs, Daniel wore a thick tights known as hoses under plate armor boots that rose up to his knees. Zack handed Daniel his shields and dagger. Then the two ambushes opened the porticulus. For God and riches, Daniel and Zack said as they banged their shields together before they charged into battle. They needn't have moved because the surge of warriors moved so fast that it carried any slower men into the thick of battle. All around Zack and Daniel, men were falling, slain by arrow, spear, or sword. Zack was swinging his sword with the precision of a master swordsman, while Daniel was beating his enemies down with the shields. He turned around to look for Zack and found him, run through by a spear. No! Daniel yelled and rushed towards the man who held the spear. He slammed his shield down upon the man's helmet, killing him. The shock of Zack's death disoriented Daniel just enough to let a warrior with an axe smash his shield, cutting his arm. Daniel dropped his second shield and pulled his dagger from his belt and stabbed the man, but there were simply too many of these men. He saw two more rush at him with spears, the pain from his sword wound and axe wound so great that Daniel spread his arms and welcomed death. 
Before the blades pierced his skin, he thought, I will never be a lord. I will never have vassals. I will never see my wife and son again. I will never taste roasted boar or be you rich enough to own a bed. I will never be able to share these wonderful spices from the east with my family. Never again. These thoughts Daniel died with. As the rain stopped, what army won was not evident, for both sides of men had de were dead by the hundreds. The men who ambushed Abe, Daniel, and Brody were collapsed against the gatehouse wall, dead like so many others. Men who suffered injuries moaned, surrounded by those who didn't have to bear the pain any longer. From the top of a keep, a Muslim man dressed in bright colors called out that the holy land was his, but in the mud something stirred. Sir Edgar pushed away the bodies of the dead and dying, grabbed a longbow from the body of a comrade, and shot. Pling! The arrow pierced the armor of the man. Of the man in the keep, and with a sickening thud, he fell to the ground. Sir Edgar knelt next to the body and whispered in the dead man's ear, The holy land is ours, and I won't let you take it. Thank you for listening to Episode 4, Medieval Storytellers. Next on Medieval Storytellers, more terrific tales from the Middle Ages. For FCI, I'm Carl Kinnear, and this has been Medieval Storytellers. <laughs>